Well, we've been, uh, we've been working through our vision statement, and yeah, we, uh, without arrogance, because arrogance is sin, we believe that we have a really good vision statement. And we started with the idea of worshiping God, and great that we're working at honing our understanding of our participation in worship and what that looks like. Uh, today, we want to talk about the second piece, which is love neighbors. And our, our text this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, gives us a bit of a window into that, and we want to look at that this morning. And the question being asked is, who is my neighbor? And maybe you're seated here this morning asking the same question, who is my neighbor? What's my obligation? How far do I have to go? It's a natural question to ask. Uh, for Jews... This would not have been understood as, uh, as Samaritans or Gentiles. It would have been Israelites only. So, so Jews would have eliminated Samaritans and Gentiles. Samaritans, of course, were what they would have called half-breeds. When uh, the Assyrians, under the leadership of Tiglath-Pileser, invaded the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, and took a bunch of people out. He also imported a bunch of others, and they intermarried, producing this mixed race, which, according to the Jews, was against God's law. And so they looked down on their noses at these Gentiles, who then lived in Samaria, and they actually went around to avoid going into Samaria. Our story today is a story about discipleship about what it means to follow Jesus. So this is really, this is not armchair theology. This is practical, shoes-on-the-ground orthopraxy. Not orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, what we do. And we want to talk about that this morning. But let's start by looking at the actors in this story. Of course, the question that starts the story is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what this teacher of the law, this expert in the law says, Teacher, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? Well, you've got to understand what that question actually is. What he's actually asking is, what do I have to do to get in? And maybe some of us have asked that, and, and of course, I grew up with hellfire and brimstone preaching, and it was, yeah, you've got to admit that you're a sinner, you've got to accept Jesus' sacrifice so that you don't go to hell. That's just kind of bare-bones understanding, right? What do I got to do to get in? Or even more precisely, what do I got to do to avoid that? So that's the question here. What do I have to do to get in? And maybe some of us are asking that question as well. And Jesus answers this question not the way they would have expected because he doesn't tell them what to do to get in. Rather, he tells them what someone on the inside looks like what someone on the inside looks like. What Jesus is doing is he's showing the difference between works and fruit. You see, works has the idea of doing something to get in. If I just do this, and I'm a checklist kind of person. My wife would tell you that. I feel like if I, you know, tick off the boxes, then I'm okay. A checklist. Um, that doesn't always fly. Works is checking it off. But fruit, on the other hand, is what you do. It's the result of who you are. So, for instance, a good example of that would be 
the fruit of the Spirit. You see, you can't work really to get the fruit of the Spirit. But when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, He demonstrates Himself, He shows Himself with that fruit. That's the result. You, you can't, obviously, you can't go and hang pears on an apple tree and say, now, there we go. The apple tree will produce apples. It's the fruit of what the tree is. Well, the Jews certainly split hairs over this question, and they excluded from the term neighbor Gentiles and especially Samaritans. And for this teacher of the law, here was his loophole. A neighbor is someone close to you. That's the definition, someone close to you. But the Jews made exceptions so that those that were not of their religion or their nation were not their neighbors. How easy it is to make exceptions. To make exceptions. And we can write this person off and this person for this reason, that reason. Certainly they're not my neighbor. So the attitude being exposed in this parable is one of self-righteousness and selfishness. And if I might, I am proud of my humility. It's so easy to be self-righteous and selfish, is it not? Am I the only one plagued with that problem? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to make a pastoral confession. It costs me money and, and maybe I'm paranoid. But you all know that spot in front of 7-Eleven where two lanes become one. And I let my carnal nature grab hold of me this last week and I was in the right lane and somebody in the other lane thought that he was going to just beat me and cut me off. And the wrong... You know, if you've got the one angel and the other one, the wrong one had the spot. And I punched it. He did not get in front of me. He punched it too. And guess what? All of the red lights on my car went on. It had never been punched like that before. And after all was said and done and the dust had settled, I had to pay for a new alternator and the work required to replace it. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the slap on the wrist. So, so I'm preaching to you about loving your neighbor, and I'm admitting to you that I don't always get it right. Okay? But note to self, I hope that those reminders aren't always that expensive. It's, it's, it's easy to just forget. Well, who else is in this story? We have the priest and the Levite. If the injured person lying there, beat up, was a non-Jew, then the priest would risk defilement, especially if that person was dead. And if he defiles himself, he cannot serve in the temple because he's defiled. And by the way, Jericho was down by the Jordan, and so it was, it was tropical, whereas Jerusalem was up on the hill, quite a ways up, and... Uh, so Jericho became a dormitory town for priests and Levites. And so when it's my week on in the temple to serve in the temple, I go up to the temple. Uh, but then when my week is done, I go back down to Jericho to be with my family. Right? Uh, but it's a treacherous road with pr plenty of opportunities for robbers to catch you. And so here's this priest and Levite going to the temple to do their duty. They're going to lead praise and worship this morning. 
or to preach after having cut somebody off or not allowed them to get in front of you. So he comes alongside this injured man and then he steps over to the other side to avoid ceremonial contamination. He avoids it. And this is a vivid and powerful picture of the vice of Jewish ceremonial cleanliness at the cost of moral principle and duty. Following the rules at the cost of moral principle and duty. And of course, the Levite, in verse 32, behaves precisely the same way as the priest had. And for the same reason. Fear, embarrassment, helplessness, etc., etc., all conspire to make people pass by. Excuses. What are ours? What was my excuse the other day? Well, it was that I was in the right lane. I was in the right. Hmm. That was expensive. No doubt the priest and the Levite were in a hurry to do God's work. And that wasn't the case with me. I was not coming to church. I think I was going home for lunch. They were in a hurry to do God's work. Yet they neglected the heart of the law, love for God and for one's neighbor. And by the way, when our call to worship verse says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, there is really nothing else left. That means with everything. And then the follow-up is love your neighbor as yourself. And so someone has said, love God and do what you like. Yeah, If you love God truly, the way this verse says, then after that you can do what you like. Because your love for God will guide everything that you do. The philosophy of life illustrated on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem by the priest and the Levite is a philosophy that is passive regarding the needs of others. Both represent people caught up in lifeless religion. They play at church, but it does not affect the way that they live. And of course, the law expert here identified with them and he condemned himself in the process. Of course, we could offer thousands of qualifiers but we get lost in the qualifiers, the excuses, too often. We should be careful not to think of excuses or reasons not to help. Well, what about the Samaritan in our story? <clears throat> As I've said, Samaritans were scorned by the Jews, especially, uh, because of their mixed race. Uh, they also, uh, their kind of worship was different than Orthodox Judaism. And they worshipped on Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem. And here this Samaritan is traveling on this road. We don't know where he's going or why. He's probably traveling on business. But he understood that both his own business and sacrifice to God had to give way to such an act of mercy as this. I think the story, if we read between the lines, also indicates that he was a man of his word. He was known to the innkeeper as reliable. The innkeeper 
seems to have agreed with what he was suggesting. And when he offers to give two pence or two denarii to the innkeeper, that's the equivalent of two days' wages. So he didn't just take out a loony or a toonie and say, there you go. He gave up the equivalent of two days' wages. What the Samaritan did helps us better understand what it means to show mercy. And it also illustrates the ministry of Jesus, who also came to serve, who also came to show compassion. The Samaritan identified with the needs of the stranger and he had compassion on him. There's really no logical reason why he should rearrange his plans and spend his money just to help an enemy. But mercy does not need reasons. Mercy does not need reasons. Being an expert in the law, the scribe certainly should have known that God required his people to show mercy, even to strangers and enemies. But how easily we sidestep Scripture. We just move it off and get it out of the way because it's uncomfortable. The Samaritan had no racial prejudice. He had no prejudice about social rank, no religious prejudice. He treated the in injured man the way he would have wanted to be treated. No doubt the priest and the Levite had their excuses. As I already mentioned, the great commandment, Matthew 22, 34-40, says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now they're trying to trap Jesus. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang on these two. It can't be much clearer than that. We study scripture in order to practice orthopraxy. Where does it touch me? What changes are required in my life as a result of what scripture tells me? The goal of studying scripture is not to fill our heads with information but to have our lives changed and transformed, to impact our homes, to alter the way we do business, to influence our relationships, to transform us, to become more like Christ. What you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. What you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. Humility and vulnerability are essential for loving others. We might be reading in this passage and think only of the high cost of caring. But it's actually far more costly not to care. When I only think about myself and I'm only fixated on myself, that's actually more costly. As we've said, the lawyer asked the wrong question. He should have asked, to whom can I be a neighbor? Only with this attitude could he fulfill the commandment of love. The point is actually fairly obvious. The lawyer or the scribe 
wants to know if he can be a neighbor to a select elite few. Jesus tells him, through the example of the Samaritan, let the neighbor be you. Let the neighbor be you. Rather than worrying if someone else is a neighbor, Jesus calls us to be a neighbor to all. He's calling us to be a neighbor to all. By reversing the perspective, Jesus changes both the question and the answer. He makes the call no longer one of assessing other people, but of being a certain kind of person myself. There's the litmus test. The command to love our neighbor comes after the command to love God. And I think that we can only truly love our neighbor the way that we should if we have come to love God the way that we should first. I think the order is important. The second commandment flows inseparably out of the first. Now, there, there are many believers who think that ethics is bound up in avoiding bad behaviors. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But God doesn't merely ask, have you harmed anyone today? He goes beyond that to ask, who have you served today? We don't like to talk about the sins of omission. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, always relegates ritual observance to a distant second to other things. Yes, we're meant to come together, we're meant to worship together, but ritual observance takes second place to other things like learning his word, character transformation, and serving others in love. The priest and Levite both were supposed to be from the tribe that did good. They were the ones that one would have expected would show kindness. Yet when they were given the opportunity to do good, they turned their backs. When we're done trying to establish, is this my neighbor? The decisive issue of love remains. What kind of person am I? Who are you? That's really the question. What grounds the way that we think about neighbors is actually our own identity, not theirs. What matters first is who we are. That's actually what Jesus is pointing to here. What I am and have belong to God, and I'm willing to be spent and to spend according to the pleasure of God and the needs of others. That's the call. So what? It takes eyes and ears to be a neighbor as well as a compassionate heart. The major, major difference between the priest and the Levite on the one hand and the Samaritan on the other is not what they saw and heard, but what they did with what they saw and heard. Only the Samaritan took pity. Only he had a heart. Neighbors are people with a heart that does more than pump blood. It sees, feels, and serves. We can love others by genuinely seeking what is best for them, by whatever means we have at our disposal. So I have some questions. Will you covenant with God to try to live a life of compassion and mercy this week? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it a week. Will you covenant with God to live a life of compassion and mercy this week? To be Jesus to any and all that you come in contact with, whether that be your spouse, your family, your employer, 
your employee, your coworker? And, and will you stop the excuses in their tracks? Identify an excuse as an excuse. Refusing to allow religious, racial, social, or other prejudices or biases to keep you from allowing the love of Christ to work in you and through you, no matter the cost. What does love for your neighbor look like? What do you and I need to change in our life in order to be a good neighbor? Attitudes, values, use of time and resources. And then finally, what is God calling our church to do together to love our neighbor? This is both individual and corporate. It's not one or the other, it's both. It's individual and corporate. So as, as we put that in our vision statement, love neighbors, we also have to flesh that out and say, what does that look like? What's, what's at our disposal as a church family in terms of loving our neighbor? How does God want us to use our resources, our building, our people, our abilities, etc., to meet his purposes? What does loving our neighbor together as a church look like? Our, our vision statement is somewhat general, which means that we together have to work out the specifics. I have to work out the specifics in my own life, but also we have to do that together as a church family. What does it mean to love your neighbor? I'm going to ask Andrew to come up and we'll quickly uh, have a conversation. Let's see if there are some questions or comments. Uh, and then we'll ask the praise band to come back up to sing. First question here. What is more effective, programmed outreach or personal individual neighboring? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? It's not either or, it's both and. And I don't think that you can do the, the programmed effort if you're not wired to do the, if it's not part of your DNA and your, your perspective individually. Um, and, and I think sometimes you need the program to help you start thinking a certain way. So I think the two work together. I don't know, what do you think, Andrew? I think it's... When there's programs in place, it can be easy to lean on those and yeah. then not do the individual, yeah. personal individual. And that's, that's a shame. I think it's got to be, there's a place for both, but when you have just one, it's easy to not do the other. Okay. Yeah, the, the okay. chicken and egg there. Um, how do we break into the established circles of those neighbors who have time only for family and longtime friends? This is a challenge in a stable community like Steinbach and surrounding communities. Um, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I, I keep celebrating uh, where I live. I live on Park Hill, and it's, it's a brand new community, and it's, it, it's actually, it's, it's amazing to watch because there are a lot of families with little kids. And the song, Red and Yellow, Black and White, comes to mind because we have a bunch of children on bikes hanging out together, and they are from every nationality possible. And I don't see a lot of distinctions between them. Uh, they play together. It, it is a wonderful community. Uh, so maybe that's different than in, a, in an area where 
people are haven't met their neighbors or don't get together. Yeah, and this could be maybe stripped a little bit, but based on our story here, our passage, that your neighbor is, they are the people that you run into that yep. are, that you have an opportunity to impact, right? So if, how do I be a neighbor to someone that's really set in their ways and I never see? Well, maybe that's, not to say that's not your neighbor, but those are the people that, like it's the people in their lives that yeah. reach out to them. Like, and it's not like you're running short on opportunities. Like right. There's going right. to be people that you can be a neighbor to. So your neighbor is a person that lives next to you. Your neighbor is a person that works with you. Your neighbor is a person that studies with you. Um, your neighbor is a person that fellowships with you or plays sports with you. Well, I guess I'm... Your neighbor is the person that you have contact with. Exactly. Yeah. Your neighbor is the person that you have contact with. Yeah. Yeah, so establish circles. If you're in those circles, that's a person you have contact with. And if you're not... And, and, and I don't think it's about seeing somebody else as a project. I, 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 I cringe at the idea of seeing people as projects. I, I, I think it's about giving genuine friendship and, and you know, serving your neighbor. I have to admit that a sermon like this fills me with some anxiety and makes me feel even more exhausted. I'm not trying to make excuses, just asking you to speak to people like me. Well, the other thing is that, that to, to use that difference, uh, not everyone's an extrovert or an introvert. And, and so, for instance, where I can easily cross the street and talk to my brand new neighbor across the street, my wife isn't wired the same way. But, but she has other ways that she is able to be a good neighbor. So this is not cookie cutter that we all have to do the same thing. Yeah, and I would also, I think, throw out that um, for the priest and the Levite, it, it wasn't even that they had to go on this big quest or really change their life or, or do all of these um, great feats for the kingdom. The opportunity was literally at their feet right there. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean that taking that step wasn't hard. Both of them didn't do it, right? Clearly it, it has its challenges, but it's not like, I mean, maybe it can be. Like, let's say Jonah, for example, you're being called far away and that's, and that's terrifying, right? And so he doesn't do it. That can be the call sometimes too. But for being a neighbor, like the man's lying bleeding in the road right there. It's and and the, the cost was going to be significant yeah. because if the priest and Levite had, had defiled themselves, mm -hmm. had become ceremonially unclean, they couldn't take the temple, they couldn't serve in the temple, so they couldn't bring those temple offerings home. So, <coughs> so potentially the family is without food for a week. If you want, if you want some perspective here, there were repercussions um, that were part of the picture. And, and yet, the call is to show mercy and to show love because the need of the injured man was greater. And I think there's also, like that will fall short, but it's in Christ's strength that we can do any yeah. of this, right? So that you feel exhausted. Yes. Like, to, like, yeah. I, like I, I get that. I feel that way too. But 
if you rely on your own strength to I have to meet all these needs and I have to be a rock for people and whatnot, then of course that's going to eventually burn you out because you're just a person, right? But it's the fact that it's the, the power of Christ that enables us to do these things, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. All right. Okay. Um. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Last one. Would you skip your sermon to help someone? Well, I, I, that's maybe an unfair question. I, I did stop. I did stop to help a guy with a flat tire on my way to Rosenort to preach once, and I thought about it twice and realized I needed to stop and offer my tire, uh, which I did. Um, I have, and so, some of you, if you've been around a long time, uh, remember when we met at SBC in the chapel, and three of us were firemen, and we had pagers. And I was supposed to speak that morning, and I was on the podium. And the pagers went off, and the others left the building, and everybody's wondering, are we going to get a sermon this morning? I stayed. In other words, there were others that could look after what the problem was, and I went after. I fulfilled my commitment here and then went. So uh, it's not always going to be cut and dry. I don't think it's going to be cut and dry. And, and by the way, I, I, let's get rid of that fear of making a mistake. I think we learn best often from our mistakes. I learned. I don't want to buy another alternator. I learned from my mistake. Right? I, so it's not about being perfect. It's about trying. And like you said, in God's strength.